0: Welcome back to The Q-Files. In this episode, we will take a close look at the power of personal narrative, examine the radical act of putting ripped-out pages back into the history books, and we'll even remember when people could fly. Here is author and professor William R. Black
1: recounting a memory of Abraham Lincoln by ex-slave Bob Maynard, written down in 1936 in Texas.
2: He tells a story that uh, before the, uh, the presidential election of 1860 that Lincoln traveled all over the South and he came to their house and slept in, quote, old mistress's bed, by which he means the bed of the, the plantation mistress, the slaveholder's wife, which, of course, there is kind of a, you know, psychosexual subversiveness there. Um, nobody knew who he was. And then he, he describes Lincoln watching the slaves work. Uh, how little food they get. Uh, he, he he watches the slaves being whipped and sold. And then when he got back up north, he, he wrote uh, Old Master a letter and told him he was going to have to free his slaves that everybody was going to have to, that the north was going to see to it. And he told him that if he looked at his house and if he doubted it, uh, he said to go in the room he slept in and look on the bedstead at the head and he'd see where he'd written his name. And then sure enough, there was A. Lincoln written on the bedstead,
1: and here is a somewhat even more radical account of encountering Lincoln by ex-slave H. B. Holloway.
2: It says that uh, that Lincoln came to uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, when the war was over, and he called for the oldest black man there to come up, um, which I think it's interesting. The oldest, uh, which you might think of the person who had. M- experience the fullest brunt of slavery perhaps uh, he doesn't spell that out but you know the oldest uh, uh former slave to come up to him and he then has all the confederate money that's that there uh, uh kind of collected together and then he asks he lincoln asks the oldest black man there to burn all the confederate money
0: a black man burning all the confederate money Lincoln sleeping in the mistress's bed and then announcing to the slave owner that indeed the slaves will be freed? The content alone is indeed remarkable, but what makes these stories so fascinating is that in all of these ex-slaves recorded memories, and there are close to 40 of them, they recount seeing Lincoln in places he could never have been, in a time, before, during, and after the Civil War, that would not have allowed him to be there, in the Deep South in the very bowels of that very, very peculiar institution. So what happened here?
1: What is going on? Professor William R. Black sifted through over 2,000 interviews with ex-slaves recorded from 1936 to 1938 to find these accounts of the Lincoln visitations. In his article for The Atlantic entitled Lincoln's Secret Visits to the Slaves, he digs deep into these ex-slave narratives and examines their origins and ways in which the collective nature of this African-American folklore created this fascinating phenomena. Where did he find these stories, and how were these oral histories originally gathered?
2: It was a a story I came across, I was a a grad student at uh, Western Kentucky University, which is where I teach now, but I got my master's there. And uh, I had a my, a professor of mine, uh, Glenn LaFantasy, and he just sort of mentioned kind of uh, off the cuff that he saw a couple of times in the WPA ex-slave narratives, which I'll get into um, in a bit, where you know former slaves had in, described encountering Abraham Lincoln uh, down south. Right? Uh, often these in these stories, uh, he's he's supposed to have traveled in, in disguise, disguised as a, a peddler or a, a tramp, a beggar, um, and then later reveals himself to have been Lincoln. And uh, so I, I dug into it and I found, uh, I want to say, 39 instances of it. Because, well, it's the sort of thing you really be a miracle to, for the our federal government to do this sort of thing today but in 1936 to 38 as part of the 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 big WPA I think it was the Works uh, Progress Administration part of that was the Federal Writers Project where they put writers and historians and genealogists and artists to work and one of those Things that they had these people doing was going around the South mainly and interviewing former slaves. Um, I think some two thousand former slaves were interviewed, and if you th- if you do the math, right, um, someone who was born in eighteen fifty, you know, was a teenager during the Civil War, would be what in their eighties uh, at this point. Yeah. And some of them were were just little children. Some of them, you know, were grown adults and were, you know, in their 90s or even 100s. Uh, some 2,000 of them were interviewed by these uh, folks, um, which is, you know, a pretty miraculous record that we have. I think some, it was about 2% of the living former slaves at the time. And the... We don't have, obviously, we don't have the original recordings. Actually, there are a handful that we have audio of, but most, mostly, it's uh, these transcriptions that these story, these oral historians would collect. Um, often, it's quoting the the person they're interviewing. Often, it's paraphrasing. Um, they're they're a little controversial because. Um, most of the people doing the interviewing were white. Um, they're filtering uh, e- e- from the way they frame the questions to how they even write out the, the answers, because c- often they're using this sort of what was called I dialect, where they want to uh, convey the, the dialect of the person who's talking, which can sometimes be a little demeaning, though uh, often contains interesting linguistic information sort of by accident. Um, but you know, uh, often the, the sort. So you have to keep in mind both the the bias of the interviewer and also that the interviewee knows who they're talking to, knows they're talking to a white person who is a, an agent of the federal government. Um, there's a lingering fear that something you might say might somehow compromise your 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 federal benefits. You know, it's about like uh, you know, census takers uh, often be finding marginalized people. Sort of on guard when talking to them. So there have been times when historians have been sort of kind of wary of using these at all. But I I think it's such a valuable resource that, you know, it's worth uh, looking at even if, you know, just being careful with it, just because these are people who mostly couldn't, you know, read or or write. And, you know, you don't often get the sort of snapshot as as to how everyday people were living and thinking you can find an online that the questionnaire that these people uh, gave and sometimes they would read off all the questions and sometimes they wouldn't, but you're, you're, you're right. That part of the questionnaire was to ask uh, these people about those four names you listed. And Lincoln is the one who seems to loom largest in their imagination, but also is the one who around whom the most folklore has uh, accrued. And, and yeah, you don't have, every now and then someone might say that they met uh, William T. Sherman or something like that but uh, but Lincoln definitely and, and I think part of it is we have to understand you know why would you claim that you saw Lincoln in the flesh you know down south you know when the historical record you know suggests this is you know very unlikely. Um, it, it, you have to keep in mind this is a time in the 1930s, when Lincoln is being co-opted by often white Southerners, um, you know uh, that the movie *The Birth of a Nation* uh, suggests, you know, it sort of celebrates Lincoln as a, as someone who would have, if he had not been assassinated, would have gone easy on the South and and the so called horrors of Reconstruction wouldn't have happened. And so it makes sense that these African Americans are wanting to reclaim Lincoln as as you know, uh, you know, they don't think necessarily a perfect ally, but someone who for a time was on their side and and also needed their help.
0: And that is one of the most powerful parts of these stories. Ex-slaves reinserting themselves back into American history through these stories of encountering Lincoln an act of resistance to a modern revisionist history that was, in the 1930s, eliminating their own collective experiences as slaves from the official national narrative of the Civil War and emancipation.
2: I mean, I I think it's it's been told enough now that it's, it's, you know, uh, pretty common knowledge that after the Civil War, there was a kind of a conscious effort among white Southerners and white Northerners to sort of whitewash the war. And and sort of say that it wasn't about slavery, that it was about states' rights and that both sides fought bravely and yada 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 and you know, uh, making Memorial Day a day when you celebrate both the Union and the Confederate dead. But it's it's worth keeping in mind that when when you're trying to whitewash a story and say the war wasn't about slavery, you're also sort of shutting out African Americans out of that story of of the war in general. I mean heck, think when the movie Glory came out in, what was it, 1989, a, a lot of Americans, white and black, didn't even realize that there were black soldiers in the Civil War. You know, and that took a century's worth of, uh, of kind of propaganda. So, if by remaking Lincoln as a kind of black tri- trickster folklore figure who is here sort of making interact with uh um enslaved people in the south and kind of it, it I, th- I think it was a desire to integrate th- themselves into that story and say that you know lincoln needed us he needed our perspective he needed our story and you know by by saying that lincoln was important to us, it also emphasizes that we were important to him and to the, the entire story of the Civil War and, and the ending of slavery. So I think that would be the, the kind of psychological um, core of it.
0: And the real genius of these stories is that they they pulled from a very old African American storytelling tradition of the trickster a long history of black folkloric characters, characters that survived by their own words, wit, and wisdom by duping others, particularly those in the very positions of power that oppressed them, and often to receive food. They would wholeheartedly weave this strand of tradition throughout the stories of their encounters with Lincoln, making these tales very much their own.
2: The story that you see kind of told the most is, it's a trope that You know, predates this. Obviously, you see this centuries uh, of folklore. the 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 trope of the 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 king or the angel who is traveling, disguised as a beggar or something like that, right? And it's a sort of and the story is kind of a test, right? He he visits a stranger, and if the stranger is inhospitable to him, then the beggar reveals himself to be the king and Uh, the rude post is punished oh yeah like uh, uh, one former slave named Frank Patterson uh, says how Lincoln came to North Carolina and had breakfast with the master you know incognito and he says that they had for breakfast ham with cream gravy made out of sweet milk and they had biscuits poached eggs on toast coffee and tea and grits and they had waffles and honey and maple syrup (laughs) <laughs> I just I love the idea of this just lavish breakfast that uh, you know Lincoln enjoys from this person who obviously would would not want to. and I think there's a kind of a relishing in that um, which you do see a lot in trickster tales outside of this Lincoln lore whether it's Burr Rabbit or the the slave John or even even trickster tales involving the devil or um, uh, uh, Aunt Nancy the sort of South Carolina. Um, version of, of a, a Nancy the spider um, oh yeah definitely the signifying monkey is is very much part of all of that as well and, and a, a common trope is uh, sort of cheating someone out of food right which in actual enslaved people's experience often the way you would be able to survive was to somehow uh, get extra food uh, through, through some sort of connivance
1: And also what really staggered us about these stories was not only the consistency, but was the geographical diversity. These stories were told throughout Texas, Mississippi, Georgia, Arkansas, and even the South Carolina Gula Islands. As late as 1982, black folk artist Sam Doyle created a painting of Lincoln speaking to the slaves during the war on the South Carolina Gula Island of St. Helena, 1982. What made for this incredible, diverse geographic landscape of these stories over such a long period of time?
2: It is. I I initially thought that maybe when I was first sort of digging around looking at these, I thought maybe they would be geographically clustered and maybe I could figure out a specific thing that maybe I'd sort of gotten jumbled around. Uh, But not really. It was pretty pervasive throughout the South. Of course, it's worth keeping in mind that several decades had elapsed and so that's a, a lot of time for a folk tale or, or uh, a trope just sort or of travel but it, it does speak to how compelling the story was um and how appealing it was to people the people you know that people wanted um to believe that they had a, a very vital role in 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 lincoln uh being the great emancipator right um and they tie this together you know they have we have they tell of uh, Lincoln encouraging them to join the Union Army, which is an, another way of sort of indicating how much uh, the Union war effort really depended on Black people to, to fight. I think what some to 180,000 Union soldiers were Black, um, and uh, I, th- I think there's there's one where he accompanies the the Union troops when they're. Uh, uh, you know, kind of occupying that part of the South and Lincoln comes and he urges them to break into the smokehouse and, and get the food out of there and have a big old party. And I think it's, it's very visceral material. You know, this idea of emancipation is not just an abstract right for them. It's having your own land, having, you know, being able to enjoy the the fruits of your labor instead of having it stolen from you. Um, And you see that very kind of material, I, you know, Uh, a visceral idea of what
1: emancipation means in these stories. So after hearing all of this, let's remember that this is indeed a podcast about the paranormal. Which brings us to the delightful yet somber Virginia Hamilton award-winning children's book entitled The People Could Fly. It proposes that indeed African-Americans were given the gift of human flight by their own African ancestors. And although slavery had broken their wings during the horrific trip on the ships that had carried them to their American chains, they still had the knowledge of flight. And the notion of flight was indeed a code word. For freedom. This excerpt is from Virginia Hamilton's book.
0: He raised his arms holding them out to her. Kumyali, yali kumbubatambe. And more magic words said so quickly they sounded like whispers and sighs. The young woman lifted one foot in the air. She flew clumsily at first, with the child now held tightly in her arms. Then she felt the magic, the African mystery. Say she rose as free as a bird, as light as a feather.
1: Virginia Hamilton herself would find 25 flying references, tales and fragments in the WPA slave narratives. The same narratives that Professor Black had sifted through. And she notes quite correctly that Toni Morrison ends her own book, Song of Solomon, with her African American eponymous protagonist flying away.
0: Which, of course, brings us to that fantastic Morrison quote The one thing you can say about a myth is that there's some truth in it, no matter how bizarre that might seem. No matter how bizarre. That might seem. In African-American writer Ta-Nehisi Coates' latest book, The Water Dancer, a work of fiction released just last year, he proposes that some slaves had the gift of conduction, or in other words, the ability to teletransport themselves and even large groups of people elsewhere, and often over long distances, and often out of the South. Coates offers very clearly in the book that Harriet Tubman, was the greatest conductor on the Underground Railroad because she not only had the gift, but was best at it. And that is how she helped fugitive slaves reach the North. There is a real robust African-American folkloric tradition here of people magically turning up somewhere where it seems physically and temporally impossible, just like Lincoln. We asked Professor Black about his thoughts on this notion. Hmm.
2: Yeah, and I, I think there's something to that. The, the idea that he was a kind of supernatural figure who could sort of a- appear anywhere in the South and sort of spy on the the, the plantation owners, the slave owners, could sort of s- sneak around with the, with the enslaved people, um, could reveal himself or not reveal himself, and then kind of disappear. And perhaps there's even kind of an implication that, you know, any kind of strange white person you met could perhaps be Lincoln somehow.
1: I mean, just think about it. Is it more impossible to believe that you can fly than imagining one day you will be at home with your family, and then suddenly you are kidnapped and placed in the putrid hall of a ship, transported halfway across the world to live out your life in chains? Seriously. That must have been totally unimaginable to those who were taken as slaves. As unimaginable as flying? When the impossible happens, no matter how horrible, then almost anything becomes imaginable. So, could Lincoln fly? Was he gifted by an African-American with a magical power to be teletransported, whether physically, emotionally, or spiritually, to a place where he could understand the slave experience? To see it firsthand, to see them whipped, to see them starve, to see their children be ripped from their arms and sold. To truly understand the need for emancipation. And do it with African-American slaves as his collaborators. And dupe the white masters of their food along the way.
0: Frankly, I believe the stories of these ex-slaves. I believe every word. No matter how bizarre that might seem. So what is the value of all these stories to understanding our own history and examining all of the aspects that truly seem to frame something happening that was otherworldly?
2: I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's what makes, it's much of what I love about history in general is, uh, you know, even the, the history of the stories that people tell, I think can do a lot to get us into uh, their world and get some insight into how people find ways to make meaning, to recover meaning to um, and recover their own place within history. And I think, yeah, st- stories that even verge on the supernatural can do a lot to do that.
0: There's also the story of Lincoln appearing to an ex-slave Tim Wyndham, as a ghost after he was assassinated and radically arming him. Here we can possibly imagine that Lincoln could foresee the horrors of reconstruction that were on the horizon for the now free African-Americans.
2: Yeah, here's Tom Wyndham, and he was living in Pine Bluff, Arkansas at the time. He, he 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 says, I believe in spirits. You got two spirits, one bad and one good. And when you die, your bad spirit is here on this earth. Now my mother comes to see me once in a while at night. She' been dead till her bones is bleached, but she comes and tells me to be a good boy. I always been obedient to old and young. She tells me to be good, and she vanished from me. My grandmother had been to me once. Old Father Abraham, Lincoln. I've seen him since he been dead, too. I got a gun. Old Father Abraham give me right out of his own hand at Vicksburg. I'm going to keep it till I die, too.
1: I am reminded of the coded words that slaves used to whisper to each other under the full moon in the woods or maybe in the swamps when they were preparing to become fugitives running towards freedom and wanting to encourage others to join them. They would say, come, fly away.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe or leave us a review. You can read Professor Black's article at theatlantic.com or visit his website at wrblack.com or talk with him on Twitter at William R. Black. He's also compiled a wonderful directory of the WPA ex slave narratives we have referenced in the story and can be accessed directly at wrblack.com forward slash Lincoln hyphen sightings. This show was created by me, Lori Gum, and Shane McClellan. Until next time, friends, be weird, stay curious. These are the Q-Files.